You're listening to Resurrection Life Podcast with your host, Father Steve Matson and Richard Budd, the podcast of the Church of the Resurrection in Lansing, Michigan. In today's episode, we talk about changes that are coming to Mass. We hear a reflection on the virtue of justice, and we listen to a poem by Luke Hansen, For Felix. Welcome to Resurrection Life Podcast. to another episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. This is your host, Richard Budd, and with me as always... Father Steve. How have you been, Father? I'm doing well. We had a little taste, and we always talk about weather. Yeah, we, we got to make sure... a delightful day yesterday. Oh, yeah, 70s. And I think, yeah, and I think tomorrow we'll be, we're recording on, what is this, uh, October 24th. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it was, it was a great gift. I ended up taking a bike ride, and uh, it was wonderful. And so we know that the changes of seasons uh, are helpful to us. We're, we're gearing up to uh, November, which is the month of where we pray for the dead. Uh, I just want to have a clarification or actually a correction. Last podcast, should you have listened to it, uh, I announced that there would be a Mass on November 4th for uh, the deceased who have died over the last year. But that's actually going to be on uh, November 11th at 11 a.m. And you're welcome to come. If you have a loved one, uh, you're maybe hearing this on uh, the 7th, uh, you could call the office. We'll name all of those deceased loved ones uh, at the Eucharistic prayer if they died between All Souls Day 2022 through All Saints Day 2021. Great. Um, before we jump into today's topic, I know we also wanted to give an update on church renovations. I know there had been some conversation that might have been started earlier, but it that's, hasn't. That's right. Yeah, we had hoped uh, a year ago to be able to move forward in just after Easter of 2023. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, uh, we had to push back. And we now have construction drawings that we're going to get bidded out. And once those bids come back, we'll be able to go to the Diocesan Finance Council and the College of Consultors and get approval for moving forward. Uh, then after that, we would uh, ideally start uh, two weeks after Easter of, of uh 2024. Okay. So it would be, I think, April 14th would be uh, Easter's on the, the 31st of March this year, very early yeah, very Easter. Early. Yeah. So we'll have uh, First Communion that Saturday, and then that Sunday the 14th would be, we're hoping, uh, the last Mass in the church, and we'll do daily Masses in Mercy Hall. And I'm hoping and confident that we'll be able to offer Mass on Sundays uh, at Lansing Catholic, their chapel there. Oh, okay. So we'll have to figure out how to adjust numbers-wise. We may invite people who go to the Vigil Mass to go to one of the other Vigil Masses in the area, and okay. I would just have the, the... I would do three Masses at Lansing Catholic on Sunday myself. So. Okay. Uh, so the drawings right now are posted in the foyer. So they are, they are um, close to what we're working on in final draft. I have said before that we're using a different architect for the altar, the ambo, the reredos, which is the 
a wooden structure around the tabernacle and where the crucifix will be. And so what you see in those drawings is uh, just a proxy for what will happen. Okay. So people shouldn't expect it to look exactly what's... That's right. And we're also looking at, and we will need to, to figure out if we have the means so to do to change the lighting in the church. Okay. Uh, sanctuary was a given when we talked about the renovation, but uh, I think most people realize that the lighting in the church is, is more like a gymnasium yeah. or, or an auditorium rather than uh, the dignity of a church. So Yeah. I remember when I first came to the parish, I thought that the church used to be a gymnasium that had been transferred into a church, uh, partly because... The sanctuary looks like it was like a, a, stage. a gym stage, yeah, yeah. and the lighting looked like gym lighting. When my brothers came for the first time to visit, they asked the same question. No, 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 it, it, and it's understandable. What What's interesting is it's my understanding that when they decided to build the church in 1952 or 51, whenever they decided, there was uh, there's that alley which is. Uh, a path through. So you see that alley. So they, they felt bounded by that space. Mm. Now, the original plan in 1943, or maybe 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 it was 39, I think it was in, in 19, or 37, was going to have the gym in the basement of the church. Yeah, I think I heard that. And uh, uh, in any case, uh, the, the school was built in... Uh, It'd be a deep basement. <laughs> well, exactly. So you would have to have stepped, gone up to the... Uh, uh, the church, mm-hmm. but in any case, uh, it is as it was designed, and it was not designed to be the the gym because the gym existed. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, today we wanted to give some updates um, based on the work that some of the uh, councils and commissions have been working on. Yeah, we, we've we've been talking about the synod on synodality, mm-hmm. and uh, in an earlier conversation, mm-hmm. you and I talked about the fact that. Uh, opening up s- some of these commissions and councils, uh, using them for uh, advisory purposes, uh, is a kind of local synodality, which I think is is great. We had the elections earlier this year, and uh, we had a gathering on October second, where we just laid out where we are, and uh, we had the various members of the commission meet, schedule their first meetings, and then. Uh, elect their rep if they were in a commission that didn't have a rep already on the Parish Pastoral Council. And uh, we've got a meeting with the Parish Pastoral Council on, I think, uh, two weeks, or it will will have already occurred when uh, this podcast comes out. But I was, uh, I am a member of the Liturgy and Worship Commission, and uh, we met this past Monday evening. And we talked about um, uh, how we can more faithfully live out the vision that the church has and also that Bishop Boyer has for the celebration of the liturgy. And not, not radical changes, but some, some tweaks to things that will begin. And I'll be talking about this on Sundays, but uh, we'll be making some changes uh, for Sunday of Advent, which is a good time to make yeah. some changes. One of those is at the end of Mass, there's now, because we're doing the... Uh, the last gospel, as it's called, and uh, the St. Michael prayer, there's, a, there's that silence. We used to do the St. Michael prayer right after the final blessing, but we really should conclude the Mass, and that includes the final blessing, the priest exiting with the ministers, the, the sanctuary. But what we're going to do is, uh, beginning that weekend, we'll do the proper Marian antiphon okay. while the priest and ministers exit the sanctuary. Then the last gospel, the St. Michael prayer, and then 
during the seasons of Lent, we will just depart in silence. The other seasons will have a recessional hymn. Okay. So, so a hymn uh, that would, I'm, I'm a little lost because you said the proper Marian antiphon, and then you'll also have a hymn? Like both? Yeah, just it's a recessional hymn. Oh, okay. So the, the, uh, what we're used to when we, we leave sure. is that recessional hymn. Yeah. But we'll do the St. Michael prayer, or we'll do the, the last gospel, then the St. Michael prayer, then a recessional. Okay. Right. So. Um, and the reason for the change was just to make sure that there's not that kind of gap? Well, I, I think it, it also makes a place for that we would always sing the proper Marian antiphon. Yeah. And, and we'll try to do it in, in a way that isn't dirge-like. So it's, it's got yes. a danger. That can be a, a, a danger of the Salve Regina, especially. Yeah. It can kind of get stretched out. And, and so we're, we're talking about that. We also want to create uh, a little bit more silence. So not having the readers go up to the ambo almost before the opening prayer mm. <laughs> or the prayers of the faithful getting up there right away after after the creed so some some, some pauses built in pauses to kind of reflect after the psalm some space not not extended time but it could be 15 or 20 seconds mm-hmm. which is we're not rushing yeah and uh, the other thing is we want to make sure that there's space after communion for there to be some silent uh, prayers of thanksgiving so it isn't just filled with noise and singing. Yeah, that's good. I mean, the, if you look at the documents of the church, it, it is very explicit that there should be periods of silence uh, for reflection, for recollection uh, at different points in the Mass. So I think those will be uh, good changes. And one of the things we will be doing is we'll send out links to the parish. Uh, we'll put them on our website as well for the, uh, the various... Uh, Marian antiphon, so that people oh, yeah. can can learn to sing them yeah. uh, outside the context of the mass. Yeah, and then you, and, and I think that is a lot easier for a lot of people. The other thing we're going to do is um, the second Sunday of the month we have the Latin um, mass, and we'll be using some of those Latin responses throughout the month mm. to practice some of those that are. Uh, a little bit of a hurdle for the people at like that the mass. Lord's Prayer, or no? We've been thinking? doing that, okay. but we'll do the the creed, the oh, credo. Okay, sure. We'll do that, so people get used to that, and then the orate fratres, mm-hmm. okay. uh, so that those little dialogue parts, yeah. which uh, I'm turning to the people and they're responding, and if you don't have them well at hand, so I've been doing them, even though the mass is in Latin in English, so that people feel like they can respond. But if we do them consistently in Latin for a season, then it will be more That's great. Automatic. Yeah. So, Second Vatican Council says that the people should know the Latin parts that pertain to them. Yeah. So that'll be good. So I, I think for us, these are... So this is just one fruit of this move toward listening to the people, which is a great grace to me yeah. and I think to the parish. Yeah, great. And I, I guess I just want to encourage people, if, if you have concerns... Some people have emailed me about the need for sacred silence, mm-hmm. and uh, I I appreciate that. And uh, you know, I I announce, especially after the nine o'clock mass, you know, people want to make that prayerful Thanksgiving. I still want people to to step outside the sanctuary, the, the church, the nave, before they catch up with each other. Uh, but if there's time built in 
at least people who want to make a, a prayer of thanksgiving will have already had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. But I do think we want to respect sacred silence before and after Mass, if yeah, at all possible. And, there, and there's something about the, the, the building in and of itself that should um, it should call for some, if not uh, absolute silent, hushed tones. Yeah, uh, it... it, it, it <clears throat> That's exactly right. I mean, you I, go to uh, if you go to the the churches in in Italy or the rest of Europe, often there are signs outside the door that number one tell you make sure you're dressed modestly, uh, which is uh, something that we don't really have here in the United States. But also that it's a place of quiet. That's right, silencio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes there's people outside <laughs> the door. Well, inside, inside. Yeah, that's silencio. what I meant. <laughs> yeah, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, any any other things that were discussed? Uh, so that was really, we were talking about uh, the liturgy conference, which oh, yeah. was held, it's in the past now, yeah. uh, November 4th, which uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, just uh, some work that, or work that Jeremy and his office had done to pull that together. Mm-hmm. And uh, evidently there was a, a conference at uh, on sacred chant at St. Thomas the Apostle on the 5th as well. So mm-hmm. this is, I think, a renewal and uh, we, we want to... Pray with the church and really to pray the mass rather than just and and singing the mass, not just singing at mass. Yeah, I think I can speak a little bit to it because I work right across the the uh, suite from Jeremy. Uh, The idea behind that conference was that uh, was the 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 Eucharistic revival. Um, So when, as people may know, a few years ago there was this um, survey that came out that said only. 30% 30% of Catholics believed in the true presence. And so there was a lot of uh, discussion about what needed to be done. I think the first kind of reaction or, or, or conclusion was that we need to do better in our catechesis. But I think with further reflection, people started to reflect on the fact that of that old term, lex orande, lex credende, the, the law mm-hmm. of how you pray is the law of how you believe. That's right. And that maybe we also needed to look at how we were praying the Mass because that might be affecting how, what people believe about the Mass. And so <clears throat> uh, Jeremy in our Office of Worship at the Diocese has really looked at how can we get back to what the, the Second Vatican Council and um, and, and other documents that came after the council actually say about the mass. Uh, because we often think we know what's supposed to be in the mass, but we're, when you actually dig into the documents, you see, oh, wait, we're not doing that. Oh, we, we haven't kept, like, you know, we already talked about uh, the people should know the Latin parts that pertain to them. That's right. I mean, what, maybe 1% of Catholics know less than that? And, and one of the things, it just as I'm reflecting on that, uh, we don't want that to be... Uh, restricted to the 11 o'clock Mass. And we do yeah. have Latin uh, for the uh, Mystery of Faith, uh, uh, the Sanctus, and uh, the Kyrie, which is in Greek. So, But we want all of the, the Masses, yeah. not just that 11 o'clock Mass, but that dialogue, uh, especially at the 11 o'clock that I was talking about. But I, I think I think what Jeremy is, is and his team and you and the mm-hmm. bishop and the chancery staff uh, it's it's a gift to us. One of the things that we need to do, I need to do as a dean, is to go around and make sure that the liturgies not have one style, but are prayed reverently mm-hmm. and beautifully. Yeah, yeah. As long as they're they're in conformity with you know the vision of the Vatican Council and the documents uh, that have uh, like uh, 
I'm just thinking of liturgiam authenticum about the language we use in the mass, musicum sacrum about the music of the mass. Yeah, and that's one of the that's one of the formation pieces that the, the liturgy and worship commission is is going to read is musicum sacrum. Yeah, great. Yeah. So good news. I'm I'm happy to hear I think this. So. I think when we pray the mass better, it makes us it opens us up to all the other aspects of of Catholic life, whether it be um, service of the poor or uh, education or the efforts that we've made in the parish for culture building. I mean, really at the center of Catholic culture is the mass. And so this will just build up the whole, That's right. I think, practice the, of faith. Uh, You're going to be serving, as I recall, on the parish pastoral council mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be uh, talking about work that the leadership team and I have been doing along with everybody else in the diocese, leadership teams from every parish mm-hmm. in the diocese, three strategic planning sessions, the last of which will be uh, the week after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we are wanting uh, at the bishop's direction to move forward to become more effective as parishes that support um, missionary discipleship. Mm -hmm. And so we'll be talking together about how can we individually, but also in our parish group and a deanery level, uh, move forward with uh, the bishop's plans and desires for us as a, a diocese. Let's convert Lansing. Let's make That's everybody right. Catholic. Exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else that you wanted to share this week? No, I, I think we're, uh, it's interesting as we, we hear these readings uh, coming up, we're anticipating the final judgment. Yeah. We're praying for the dead, keep doing that. But also remember that one day we will be among them and for us to live so as to be ready for that day. Whether the Lord calls us home or he returns, let us be faithful disciples who prove that we are wearing the wedding garment. Yeah, visiting a, a, a cemetery is a good practice during the month of November. Absolutely. There's that um, old saying on a, a tomb, what you are now I once was, what I am now you will one day be. Well, it, it, it is, uh, I, I think we may have talked about this the last time we, we had the podcast, but Every year at the convocation, we have a mass for the deceased priests and, mm-hmm. and deacons of the. Uh, maybe, I think maybe it's just the the, uh, the priests, the deacons at their convocation have, have a mass for the deceased deacons, and bishops and and priests at ours. And uh, the longer I'm a priest, the more of those priests I knew and yeah. served with. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day. Uh, should the You'll Lord tarry? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, for another week, this is Rich and Father Steve. God bless. We know at the end of this world there will be a day of judgment when our vices and virtues will be weighed in the balance. And the following reflection from Sean O'Neill, we explore how God administers both justice and mercy and how we can practice the virtue of justice in our own lives. The Virtue of Justice It used to be the case many years ago that some of the favourite topics that preachers used for their sermons were the four last things, death, judgment, heaven and hell. The emphasis was usually on instilling fear into the congregation, anxiety about God's judgement of them and terror at the prospect of burning in hell. Often there were dramatic and graphic descriptions of the day of judgement which in Latin is called Dies Irae, 
the day of anger. And people used to slink away from mass with a heavy but nebulous feeling of guilt for something they couldn't quite put their finger on. It's true that we will have to account for our sins and if we die in mortal sin, our destination will ultimately be hell. However, for those of us who die and are still friends of God, the prospects are not quite as dire and certainly not as horrible. One of the things that often escapes our consideration is that the day of judgment will mean justice for those who were oppressed in this life. Those who were bullied, abused, tortured, discarded by humanity or murdered will receive justice. And unless they repent, the wicked who perpetrated those crimes and sins will, at the end, get their just deserts. Therefore, Judgment Day is also Mercy Day. God's justice also demands that those who have remained faithful will be rewarded on the Day of Judgment. Jesus tells us this in the parable of the talents. Those who have made the most of what they have been given and have served God well will hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. St. Catherine of Siena received this word from God the Father in prayer about those who die in a state of grace. These souls wait for divine judgment with gladness, not fear, and the face of my Son will appear to them neither terrifying nor hateful, because they have finished their lives in charity, delighting in me and filled with goodwill towards their neighbour. There is a kind of justice that we ourselves can exercise. It's connected to the emotion of anger. When we see injustice, it's supposed to arouse a level of anger in us. The emotion of anger is meant to provide the power to right the wrongs that we see happening to others. Nevertheless, often we feel angry if we ourselves are not treated well, if we are slighted or overlooked or bullied or attacked either physically or psychologically. In that case, the most appropriate response should be meekness, not anger. When we overreact with anger to some injustice towards ourselves or even towards somebody else, then that can lead us into sin. Anger is sometimes described as an idolatry of power, control or justice, which can lead us into bitterness, retaliation and making judgments of other people. And that's when it becomes sin. A correct exercise of justice should lead us to address unjust situations. For example, when we hear about people who are dying of hunger, it should motivate us to reach out and to help them in some way, even going so far as to visit them and provide material help. When we hear of people suffering through war or oppressive regimes, it should encourage us to do what we can to alleviate their suffering. Almsgiving is an act of justice. Why? Because our possessions don't really belong to us. We are merely stewards of the things that God has provided for us. We might argue that we have worked long and hard to accumulate the wealth that we have, but none of that would be possible without the Lord allowing us to accrue material possessions. Almsgiving is a way in which we can expiate our own sinful ways. So that's a further way in which almsgiving 
is a demonstration of justice, in that we compensate for any evil we have brought into the world through our sin. Helping other people by serving them is an act of justice. We are obliged to love even our enemies, because God loved us when we were still sinners, enemies of God, and we need to emulate him. In Leviticus 20 we read, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. When we consider all that God has given us, the relationships he has put into our lives, employment, good health, money, a roof over our heads and food on the table, out of gratitude to the Lord we should be motivated to serve others, especially those who are not quite as fortunate as we are. To the same extent, rendering God praise and thanks for his kindness to us is an act of justice on our part. Giving God the praise he is due, as it says in 1 Chronicles 16, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. In scripture, the word justice is a technical term meaning righteousness or holiness. It has connotations of being right with God, pursuing holiness. And holiness is often depicted not so much as being personally righteous, but rather being set apart for God or consecrated to God. When someone is justified, it means they are set apart or dedicated to God. And so we can speak of baptism as justification, that is, transformation from being a sinner to being consecrated to God and holy, a son or daughter of God. In the Bible, the just man is the righteous man who is at peace with God and knows he is loved, therefore he acts in a righteous way by loving others. As St John the Evangelist reminds us in his first letter, we love because he loved us first. God is just, but also merciful. Just because we deserve death for our rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Merciful, because he died in our place in an astonishing act of mercy. In this way, God's justice sets up a new dynamic that also incorporates mercy. So when God tells us to be holy as he is holy, he's also asking us to temper our judgment of other people with mercy, to give other people a second chance. When Jesus tells us to forgive our brother 70 times 7, he is asking us always to forgive those who have hurt us, attacked us or abused us, even if they have not asked for forgiveness. This forgiveness is so important to God that our salvation depends on it. We literally can't get into heaven if we hold judgments of other people and refuse to forgive them. It's so important that at the end of his life, while he was in the throes of agony on the cross, Jesus chose to forgive those who were killing him. These words from St. Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, describe this paradoxical love of God. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 
In other words, when we sin and are faithless, he will always take us back if we repent. The only time that God will ever reject us is if we die in a state of having rejected God. Let's pray and ask God to give us his perspective of justice. Heavenly Father, open my mind and my heart to understand and put into practice your justice and your mercy. Give me the grace to combat injustice, but in mercy to forgive those who have hurt me. I praise you for your wisdom, your mercy and your love. Amen. We finish this episode with a poem by Luke Hansen, For Felix. This poem is titled, For Felix. And uh, I have a son named Felix. And while we named him after the, the meaning of the word, more than after any one of the dozens of Saints Felix in the Catholic Church, um, I think most often in the circles we run in, we get St. Felix of Nola brought up, who uh, was a third century Italian who lived during uh, one of the Roman persecutions of Christians. He was a priest uh, and he was held captive by the Romans, uh, but freed by an angel to go and help his friend and bishop Maximus, who had been living uh, in hiding in the mountains. And so he found his friend who was close to death. They hid from the Romans together during this persecution. And his most famous story is when they were hiding together in a small cave um, and the Romans were searching for them. A spider wove a web across the entrance to that cave so that the Romans who came by thought it was uh, undisturbed and there would be no one hiding there. And so they, they passed by. Um, and I just wanted to explore that saint and see what meaning I could find there since it's, it's brought up so frequently in, in my son's context. Uh, interestingly, one of the big reasons we know about St. Felix of Nola is another saint 100 years later, St. Paulinus of Nola, uh, who was a Roman poet, senator, governor, who converted later in life to Christianity and left his, his political career to become Bishop of Nola. And so he credited his conversion to St. Felix and every year he wrote a poem about him. And so that's a lot of the context that we have for St. Felix is from the writings of St. Paulinus. So I thought it was appropriate then in, in that tradition to also write a poem uh, for Felix. This poem is called For Felix. We've heard in hagiography of yore how Felix fled his prison in the night he slipped the chains that held him trembling tight and trembling slipped between the open doors from where he didn't flee to safer shores, but sought his friend to share their common plight. Their forms were hidden from their searcher's sight. A spider's web confounds the Roman core. So Felix, when you see an open gate that leads to suffering with a friend, take heed. It's God who calls you to that godly place. Recall your namesake's trial and happy fate, for he who frees you helps the ones in need, and from your willing weaves salvific grace. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. Please tune in next time for more conversation, reflections, and Catholic culture. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you'd like to drop us a line to give us feedback or suggest future topics to feature, write us at podcast at corelansing.org. You can find the Church of the Resurrection online at corelansing.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.